I really enjoyed being at that Shepherds Conference these last few days. Here, Dr. MacArthur preach, R.C. Sproul, Al Moeller. The preaching was outstanding. One of the things I came away with that was most encouraging to me was when uh, they had given Dr. MacArthur an hour to preach and his introduction took 50 minutes. <laughs> and so he only managed to really take a fast look at the first point. And I thought, okay, I'm in good company. <laughs> Other people have trouble getting their thoughts all expressed out in a short period of time as well. Well, we'll see how we do this morning anyway. Just continuing on that theme that we've been working on here since January, reading through the scriptures together. The dividends are huge for us to do this. And sometimes you will fall behind. As I told you, I've fallen behind, and the thing to do is to get back on. Now, I will go back and catch up the few chapters I'm behind, but my encouragement to you is if you fall you know, too far behind, just get back in where, you, where we are and keep going from there. Don't let it squash you and, and uh, throw you permanently out of the race. But, you know, as we're reading through the Scriptures together, we're going to encounter various puzzles, various conundrums as we're reading through. There are going to be things that just aren't really all that clear to us. Perhaps passages that will confuse us or, as I say, puzzle us. They might, some of them might even lead us to, to wonder if, you know, is the Bible mistaken? I mean, we're going we're gonna to read things that are going to contradict other authority sources in our culture, in our lives. And we're going to be faced with, with the dilemma. Now, we may not articulate it out saying, you know, is the Bible wrong here? We probably none of us in this room would, would actually vocalize those words. But we are going to have conflicting authorities that are going to come to us in this year. The Bible is going to say one thing and, and others are going to say something else and they're going to collide. And the question that we're going to have to resolve is who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the scriptures or are we going to believe these other authorities who say things that are contrary to the scriptures? It's a huge issue, huge issue. So last week, we began to look at the, the doctrine of inspiration. And, and the reason I wanted to, to pause here in John 14, verse 26, really, and sort of stretch this out a little bit and look at the, at the doctrine of inspiration is so that we can gain a, a renewed sense of confidence in the text that we have before us. If we can become persuaded in the deepest part of our soul that we are holding the very Word of God in our hands, that will go a long way in the struggle against competing authorities. It'll go a long way. And beloved, the, the doctrine of inspiration and the derivative doctrines that come from it, some of which we will talk about this morning together, are under attack and they are under attack not so much by those outside of the evangelical church. They have always attacked those things. And so we're not particularly susceptible to those outside critiques. It is the internal attacks to which we are in danger. 
It is those who rise from within evangelicalism and would not openly repudiate inspiration and the derivative doctrines, not with their mouth, but with their deeds. And so I think it is important to be continually reminded of these bedrock truths. It is not the church that gives authority to the Word of God. It is the Word of God that gives authority to the church. And that is a huge difference. Last week, I told you there are four reasons why we can be confident that the New Testament is the Word of God so that we will immediately and instinctively obey it. You'll remember that I told you last time that that Jesus' words there in John 14, verse 26, where it talks about the Spirit's work in inspiration, come in the context of obedience. I'm not going to go back and look at that again, but repeatedly Jesus spoke about having my words and keeping them. It is ultimately an obedience issue. This is not just theology for theology's sake, just so you will think rightly, although that is important. It is thinking rightly so that we will behave rightly, so that we will submit to the authority of Scripture and that we will do it immediately and instinctively. Instinctively. That when we become persuaded that the Word of God says to do something, we do it. When it tells us not to do something, we cease doing it. That's where we need to get to. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's where we need to go to. Now, just reviewing for you very briefly, the first reason last week that we noted that we can be confident that the New Testament is the Word of God is because that the New Testament writers had divine authority. Divine authority. When Jesus gave the Great Commission there at the end of Matthew 28, He said, All authority has been given to me, verse 18, in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me. I send you. And I send you with a derivative authority of mine to make disciples of the nations. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now we noted last time that certainly the disciples never reached all the nations. And and nor did they ever think they would reach all the nations. Not through a verbal preaching ministry. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to them, right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That there is built into their authority that has been given to them, the authority to reduce the words of Christ to writing and then to spread those writings from one end of this planet to the other in order to disciple the nations and teach them. This authority that Christ said has been given to him and that by derivative goes to them comes out through their writings, which is the New Testament, the Word of God. So the New Testament has a divine authority built right into it. Built right into it. Second reason. 
was that the writers had a spiritual superintendence. A spiritual superintendence that the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, called in John the Spirit of Truth, or the Spirit who communicates truth, was a ministry of superintendence. We, it's called inspiration. It's that, that mystery whereby the Spirit of God, working upon the hearts and minds of these specially chosen men, these apostles and prophets, so superintended them that they recorded the very words that the Spirit of God wanted recorded. Yet at the same time, their own will and intellect was not violated, such that they wrote with their own particular style and patterns and vocabularies and communication techniques. And we said it's a mystery and it shouldn't bother us because every single time we bump up against God, we arrive at mystery anyway. This is just one more to add to the list. There were a number of texts we looked at to sort of clarify this, elaborate a little. We looked at 2 Timothy last week, 3, 16, 17. Paul says it's the onustus, it's the spiration, it's the outbreathing of the creative breath of God that brings about the Scriptures. We looked over at 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says that, the, that no prophecy was ever given out of one's own imaginations, but that the men, the holy men of old, were moved along, borne along, blown along like a ship before the wind, the Spirit of God, that they would record the very things God wanted recorded. It was a passage we didn't look at last week. I'm going to take you to it this week, just ever so briefly, in 1 Corinthians 2. <coughs> First Corinthians 2, really beginning in, in verse 6 through 13, we're not going to look at all of that. Paul talks about this process, but it's verse 13 that I want you to, to just see. Well, the end of verse 12, Paul says, The things freely given to us by God, that is the Scriptures, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The human authors were given not just the thoughts, but the words to record for all time in the New Testament. So it is down to the very words that are recorded. The inspiration is not just somehow a process that kind of steps back and preserves an overall integrity. It is a process that gets right down to the choice of words, and we said even last time, to the choice of verb tenses. It is, it is right down to the, to the very minutest level of language, and grammar, and syntax. Beloved, that's why we practice a literal, historical, grammatical approach to the Scriptures. That is why we take time to exposit the Scriptures word by word at times, clause by clause, picking it apart, looking at grammar, looking at lexical meanings of words, putting it all back together, bringing history and culture to bear, and, and just examining the text with a microscope so that we might know what God has said. Because the Scripture tells us that it's that important right down to that level. We need to be workmen 
who are approved, right? Workmen who are approved, doing the hard work of Bible study. And that's all because of inspiration. Now, the third reason we looked at last time took us to our jumping off text, which was John 14. So go ahead and turn there. We said the third reason why the New Testament is the Word of God and thus commands immediate and instinctive obedience is because the New Testament writers had perfect recollection. Perfect recollection. There it is, John 14, 26. Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All means all. That He will bring to their remembrance the, all of the sayings of Christ. Now, last time John tells us over in John 21, I believe it's verse 25, that if, if, if all of it had been written down, that even the world wouldn't contain all the books that are involved. I mean, Jesus didn't say just a few things. He had an itinerant preaching ministry that covered close to three and a half years. There was a lot that he said. <clears throat> it's not just that the, that the apostles, the New Testament writers, had, a, had an idea of some of it and they kind of patched it together out of their own imaginations or recollections or pooled memories. No, it is a divine work of the Spirit of God that brings it to their remembrance. And that includes the actual choice of words. By the way, the, the verb translated to bring to your remembrance is used six other times in the New Testament, and it always refers to something that was previously known or heard. Always refers to something previously known or heard. So that which they had heard before from the lips of Christ, the Spirit of God brings back to them. And it is not a selective bringing back. He says it's all, that it's all-encompassing. And it's staggering when you think about it. Simply staggering. The magnitude of this promise that all of the words of Christ come flooding back into their mind. I mean, can you imagine the Apostle John? He's, he's sitting down to write the Gospel of John. It, it would be like a kid in a candy store where, where everywhere he turns, there's something good to choose. I mean, where do you begin? John begins by selecting seven miracles and structures his gospel around them and then, and then puts the major discourses of Christ that fit around those miracles together and gives us this flow we call the Gospel of John. But he had a wealth to choose from. Wealth to choose from. And that, by the way, beloved, you know, when I'm working through the text of John in the, you know, during the week to, to get ready to, to preach to you, one of the questions that I, that I ask myself over and over again is why did John include this material in his gospel? Over and over again, I ask myself that question. I mean, he had it all before him. It was all available. This is not, the gospel of John is just not what he could remember. 
It was all out there for him to choose from. It's like a, like a, a chef preparing a meal. All the ingredients are there. And it's this, it's this, it's this, a pinch of that, and you know, a pound of that, or however it was put together. Yet he chose what he chose under, under inspiration. So you can say, why did the Holy Spirit choose this to record here? Why this, not this? It's bailed me out a lot in the last two years as I've gone through this gospel. As I've repeatedly asked myself that question and been forced to answer it. Why this? How does this contribute to his theme that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name? I recommend that to you, by the way, in all Bible studies. I call it the paper and ink principle. There's only a, so much paper and so much ink, so why this and not that? Because it was brought to their remembrance. And then they chose under inspiration to record it. Fourth reason. Fourth reason is that the New Testament writers had divine instruction. It's here again in verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, he will teach you all things. They had divine instruction. Now, this is not a promise. He says he will teach you all things. This is not a promise that he will teach them everything there is to know in all of the universe. What it is, is a promise that he will teach them all that they need to know to fulfill their mission and purpose in life, which is to make disciples of the nations. That is what he will teach them. The work of witnessing to which they will give their lives, he will teach them what it is they need to know. What it means is he will help them to understand that which they've remembered. One promise is to remember it. The other promise is to understand it, to interpret it, to, to put it into a context. And through their written communication, the future generations of the people of God would have the words of Christ remembered for them and, and put into a context and instructed to them. Paul says it in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 this way, We are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And beloved, that is New Testament prophets, that is not Old Testament prophets in that verse. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the church is the word of God. It is the scripture that supports the church. It is not the church that supports the scriptures. Therefore, the scriptures sit on jud in judgment upon the church. And it is, the, it is the obligation and responsibility of the church to bring itself into line with the scriptures. They are our source of authority. It is not man-given. It is not tradition passed down through the ages. It is not some pope that sits over us. It is the Word of God that rules us. We need no denomination. We're better off without one. We sit under the authority of the Word of God. New Testament writers had divine instruction. He will teach you all things. He will help you to understand what it is you remembered that I had said.
me see if I can illustrate this to you. Prior to the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and remember, this is all in the context of the upper room discourse, right? Jesus is headed to the cross. He's promised them, when I will go away, I will send another helper, the paraclete, who is like unto me, who will, the spirit of truth, who will use truth to bring comfort to your hearts. Prior to Pentecost, Jesus in Matthew 16 talks about himself going to the cross and dying and being raised again. You remember that? And the apostle Peter pulls him aside. And he says, now, now, wait a minute. Far be it for you, Lord, for these things to happen. I mean, basically, forget it, Jesus. Crucifixion at the hands of the, of the Romans. The whole messianic uh, uh, enterprise collapsing in your death. What are you, crazy? Things are just starting to really move. Jesus turns to Peter and he rebukes him, doesn't he? He says, get thee behind me. Satan. So there, before the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, we have Peter, who is so fouled up, so messed up, so can't figure out what's going on, that he, along with the others, are arguing with each other about who's going to get the top billing at the banquet table, including, by the way, right into this very night. They're still arguing over that issue. They have no good understanding of what's going on here at all. Then the helper comes at Pentecost. And then Peter stands up. Go over to Acts 3. Just, just, get a, just get a peek at this. I mean, it is staggering to see the transformation that comes over this fisherman. He now stands up and he begins to preach. Acts 2 is his Pentecost sermon. Acts 3 is, is another sermon that just comes a little bit later. But here is this same fisherman who was once rebuking Christ and telling him, forget about the, you know, your messianic program here, the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and all that stuff. I don't want any part of that. And Peter begins, stands up and he begins to preach with a level of theological sophistication and confidence and boldness that is unheard of. Unheard of. How is it that the Peter now can reach back into the Old Testament and pull forward all of those prophecies and link them together and that which what Christ had said and put it all into a package and preach a sermon that will turn around and it will pierce the Jewish nation to their soul? How does that happen? How does a man who was so befuddled and confused that night in the upper room become one who can preach with such clarity and boldness? How does that happen? I mean, it's, it's absolutely astounding. He preaches this sermon. In fact, it is so powerful that the Jewish authorities are, are blown away by it. They can't figure it out. I mean, look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Acts 4, 13. Now, this is right after Peter's sermon here. And it says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling. Where do these simpletons get this kind of preaching? That's what they're marveling over. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Let your eye go up to verse 8. Notice the condition for Peter's powerful preaching. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Boom! And then he lays it on them. Spirit of God. 
The Spirit of God brings to remembrance all that Christ had said. He instructs them on the proper interpretation and fitting together of all that Christ has said, plus all that had been said earlier through the Old Testament prophets, and it is all rolled forward, and the message goes out. You don't learn that kind of stuff in seminary. I mean, these guys didn't even go anyway. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And, beloved, it's recorded for you. It's recorded for me right here on the pages of Scripture. We know what Peter preached. It's right here for us. Right here for us. It's incredible. Four reasons why the New Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament writers, they had divine authority. The New Testament writers had spiritual superintendence. The New Testament writers had perfect recollection. The New Testament writers had divine instruction. And that leads me to meditate on these things. What are the implications of the truth of what we have just talked about yesterday and this morning? I mean, what are the implications that come to us by virtue of the fact that the writers of the New Testament wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and recorded the very words of God? What are the implications of that? Well, there's a lot of them. The first one is that inspiration guarantees inerrancy. Inspiration guarantees inerrancy. If we can... We can get to this this morning. That will suffice us for today. The fact that they wrote under inspiration guarantees that what they wrote was inerrant. That means infallible, without any error. There are, there are no errors to be found in the Word of God. That's what it means. They were working under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. That makes their words God's words. Now follow this, this line of reasoning here with me. Pay attention. Their words are God's words, right? They're writing under inspiration. We've, we've hammered that point. And as the word of God, it takes on the character of the individual whom, who spoke it out. And one of the essential characteristics of God is holiness. Holiness. Do you ever wonder, by the way, why the front of your Bible says a holy Bible? Because as the Word of God, it takes on the essential character of God, and, and on the essential character of God is holiness, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, His Word takes on that characteristic. And the, and the definition of holiness is separation from sin. And the sin that is separated here, that they're separated from, is the sin of error. The sin of error. It is to, to, to cause an error, to make an error, is a, is a sin. It is a falling short of the perfections of God. And so, because the Word of God bears the character of God, which is holiness and the essential 
characteristic of holiness is separation from sin, and error is sin. Therefore, the Word of God is without error. Without error. Let me give you just for a moment a more technical definition of inerrancy so you can have something to go away with here. Paul Feinberg writes this in a book. um, It's a book edited by Norman Geisel called Inerrancy. It is available out in the bookstore. Page 294 of that book, Paul Feinberg writes as follows. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. When all the facts are known, and they're not all known, beloved, so there are conundrums, there are, there are difficulties, there are, there are places in the Scripture where we can't explain it. Granted, But when all the facts are known, the original writings of these apostles and first century prophets, properly interpreted, are without error in everything they touch upon. Not just human behavior and ethics, but science, history, the social sciences. It's it's all wrapped up in this. Let me give you some evidence for this. Let's go through these quickly. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God. All means all. It is all of the Scripture inspired by God. And thus bear the inerrancy that inspiration guarantees. Matthew 8, 5 and verse 18, Jesus said, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That is a promise of complete fulfillment. Now, you might say, well, he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, he was at that time. But last week I showed you how the writers of the New Testament put their writings on par with the writings of the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18, when the Apostle Paul takes Jesus' words in Luke 10, and he takes uh, Moses' words in Deuteronomy, and he puts them side by side, and he says they're Scripture. And therefore, when Jesus says that not one stroke will pass away from the law, that the Old Testament law will come to its full fulfillment, by extension, he means that the Scriptures of the New Testament will also come to fulfillment. He said it in John 10.35, the Scriptures cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. I mentioned this before. There are times when the, when the entire argument that the, the, that the biblical writer is making depends upon the tense of a verb. Jesus confronted the Sadducees in Matthew 22, verse 32, who deny the resurrection. And he proves the resurrection by a present tense verb. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am, present tense. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who are now dead. I am their God because though they be dead, yet they live. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. He focuses on a, sing, a singular Versus a plural 
Now the word seed, he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many but to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul's whole argument hinges on the fact that, that Moses uses seed singular to prove Christ. We have the evidence that comes to us from the very character of God. God the Father breathes out the scriptures and he is true. Titus 1-2, God who cannot lie, it says. We have God the Son whose words are brought to the remembrance of the New Testament writers. John 14-6, I am the way, the truth. We have the Spirit of God who is the agent of inspiration. 1 John 5, 7, the Spirit is the truth. We have in John 17, 17, where Jesus says, Your word is truth, referring to the very scriptures themselves. And so, from the very character of God, who cannot lie, who embodies truth, we have his word, we have inerrant scriptures. Now, let me just quickly acknowledge a few things. Sometimes people put up straw men against this argument of inerrancy. They'll say, what about round numbers in the Bible? Are you trying to say that, you know, I think there's errors in the Bible because it talks about the angel slaying 185,000 of the Assyrians. You mean it wasn't 185,001 or 184,999? It was 185,000 exactly? Who counted them, by the way? I mean, that's the way the argument would progress. But that is a misunderstanding of what inerrancy is all about. Inerrancy does not exclude common patterns of communication. And one of those common patterns of communication is the use of round numbers when taking censuses or when reporting battle statistics. And so that is not incompatible with the doctrine of inerrancy, the fact that there are round numbers used. Furthermore, the Bible speaks with what's called phenomenological language, not the precise language of, of the science textbook. But that shouldn't bother anybody here because you all speak with phenomenological, phenomenological language yourselves. It's easy for you to say. <laughs> right? Because on this morning, you talked about the sun rising, not the earth rotating. No one says what a beautiful earth rotate that was. <laughs> right? They just talk about a sunrise. And so that is a very common way to speak. So we should not put upon the scriptures the precision that we don't even use ourselves and then call it full of errors. Further, the Bible uses figures of speech, personification, hyperbole, metaphor, simile. This is all compatible with inerrancy. Another one, the New Testament writers, they cite, typically they cite rather than quote the Old Testament. They're, they're citing it. They're not quoting it. There are no quotation marks in the, in the, in the, in the Greek New Testament. They don't quote in the way that you and I are, are used to quoting. So when you, when you look up a New Testament citation, you go back to the old, sometimes you see the words are a little different. It's not because they've made a mistake. They're stupid. They didn't know what it said. They are not quoting it in the way that a modern quotes for a, for a, a document for a Ph.D. dissertation with a footnote. They are citing the text. Furthermore, they use different translations. They use the Septuagint sometimes. And our Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text. So there are those kinds of differences. 
Finally, they use partial detail rather than exhaustive detail. They don't tell you everything that happened in one event. They give you the the details that are pertinent to what they're communicating. All of these common patterns of writing are very much, very much compatible with inerrancy. Let me say this and just close it out for this morning. We'll come back to this one more time. Inerrancy refers to those original manuscripts. The original writings. Paul, Luke, Peter, Matthew, Mark, John. And those are gone. They're not around anymore. They were destroyed, perhaps. Maybe they just wore out with use, perhaps. Maybe they were lost. No one knows. They don't exist any longer. And people will use that as a reason to deny inerrancy. But beloved, that doesn't overturn the doctrine of inerrancy, not the slightest bit. Next week when we come back to this topic, I will show you how will you very much hold in your hand the inerrant word of God? Let's pray.